Grace, please introduce yourself. Hi everyone, I am your co-host, Grace Zhou Yue. Uh, I grew up in Beijing, now work in DC, and have a lot of professional and personal interest in Africa. After being a listener for Curries and Rice for a long time, I'm quite honored and thrilled to be invited to be the co-host of this podcast. And we hope we will be hearing more from you in the coming months. In any case, today's episode, as always, is brought to you by our sponsor, African Development Jobs. African Development Jobs, a site run by Nino Duro, seeks to connect development workers with professional development resources and work opportunities in Africa. On a quest to help diversify development, it highlights the voices and issues of Africans and the diaspora in the field. It is also the best site for finding employment in the development field in Africa that I know of. This episode, and indeed this entire month's slate of episodes, will have us discuss the unfortunate death of President Michael Sata of Zambia, who passed away on Wednesday, October 29, due to an undisclosed illness. We wanted to explore what President Sata's death means for the China-Zambia relationship, and this week we have Ms. Hannah Postel on the pod. Ms. Postel, a graduate of Middlebury College who specialized in economic development, migration, and overseas Chinese, just returned to D.C. as a 2013-2014 Fulbright Scholar in Zambia, and we wanted to get her insights as to what Sata's passing might mean for the Zambia-China relationship going forward. Ms. Postel, welcome to the pod. Thanks so much for having me. What was your Fulbright experience like? How did it fit into your interest in overseas Chinese communities? And why did you choose Zambia? So it was an incredibly educational experience for me. Um, I went straight after graduating from undergrad, um, my first time in Africa. So I first got there and had absolutely no idea what I was doing. Um, the Fulbright's a very independent um, program. Basically, the State Department um, gives you a grant, and then you're left to run with it to do a program of your own design. So I was helped out by two organizations when I was in Zambia, um, the, Southern Policy, the Southern African Institute for Policy and Research, um, a think tank down there, was really great in helping me kind of get a sense of the lay of the land and what the research environment was like and just some general background on Zambia since I'd never um, been. And then I was also affiliated with um, the Zambia Development Agency, the government um, investment promotion agency. So they are very helpful in linking me up to other government organizations and providing me um, basically with introductions to get in the door that I um, doors that I wouldn't have been able to otherwise. So I've always been really interested in migration as kind of a way of looking at global change. I think it both affects and is affected by a lot of other topics that are um, that people tend to focus on, so politics, economics, really everything is involved. But when it comes to overseas Chinese and China abroad, I think everybody tends to talk about the money and nobody tends to talk about the people. So everyone's saying China is investing X amount in this country and China's trade with Zambia has you know, crested X amount. Um, but no one talks about the people who necessarily accompany these companies um, and this money. No one has any idea even how many of them um, there are in Zambia and even a lot of different places. And I think that it can have, I think, these communities abroad, not only Chinese, but really anyone, um, can have, will have a huge effect um, politically, socially, economically moving forward. So it's really important to understand who these people are, where they're from, what their goals are, um, to really get a sense of what the future might look like. Um, so I chose Zambia for a couple different reasons. First, it is a pretty good case study for China and Africa due to um, 
the huge presence of the copper sector, um, so China focusing on a lot of extractive industries um, in Africa. But it also has some unique aspects, like it's the home of China's first aid project in Africa, um, and it's first um, special economic zone in this renewed... First aid project? I thought the first aid was the medical team back in 63, the Algerian medical team. What kind of aid project? What's so, specifically... Okay, maybe Sub-Saharan Africa. Generally, it's talked about the Tazara Railway in 69 being the first aid project. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, okay. So it demonstrates like a very long history. So I think that's kind of one of its unique elements. Um, It's been long and a very uninterrupted, um, you know, they're known as fair weather friends. Um, (laughs) And then also, as I mean, as we'll discuss... um, Recently, the Chinese have been um, the subject of a lot of debate given some political positions and some controversy and violence seen at a couple mine operations. So for both of those reasons, I thought it was a good place to focus my research. Terrific. Yeah, and where is your interest in China from? Um, Various places. I studied Chinese at the Great Middlebury um, Chinese Program. And I actually worked at a U.S. consulate in China for a summer, so I worked... Which consulate? Um, in Chengdu. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, um, I used to live in Mianyang, and I went to the Chengdu consulate all the time. I took, um, uh, I did a, a bunch of stuff there, and, and, it's, and it's great. And it's, it's near some really good restaurants, Pizza oh. Tex-Mex. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I ate any Western food the entire time. I'm a total... Quadio addict. I'm all about the Sichuan food. But um, I worked on the visa line when I was there. So, yeah, no, so I got a, I started to get really interested in um, why Chinese were leaving the country and where they were going and stuff like that. And so, from an operations side, I wanted to look at the bigger picture too. Although, honestly, I don't know why anyone would live in Sichuan. It's the best place in the world. But, um, I, yeah, I, I didn't really want to come back. Um, it was great. Um, it's really well known for its language programs because, for example, for our first year Chinese classes, we had class um, seven times a week. We had drill class where literally we would repeat words back to our professor at 8 a.m. on Friday mornings, um, which at the time, none of us were that thrilled about. I think but we make all our listeners never want to attend middle grade. <laughs> it was so wonderful. They're so wonderful. Our professors would bring us like homemade balls at a class and like, it's just like a family and like a group of I mean maybe 50 students a year and it's so intense that you know we all really work together and we have like a really good community but we're also really stereotyped it's like if there's kids in the library at 3 a.m they probably take Chinese oh no it was great though I wouldn't have had it any other way (laughs) awesome yeah so talking about uh, China and its relationship with Zambia can you give us an outline of President Sada's unique relationship with China yeah, so President Sasha was very well known for being extremely outspoken about the um, role that China's playing in the country, especially when he ran for president in 2008. Um, he accused the Chinese as being invest- investors instead of investors, and basically said that they are taking a lot of jobs away from Zambians and um, were having a really negative effect on the economy by basically exploiting what was going on there um, and he also one of the most interesting th- things to me kind of looking at demographics is that he cited this 
um, this number of 200,000 Chinese in Zambia to basically lend credence to this idea that they were taking over. So, I mean, no one really knows how many Chinese people are in Zambia, but by my estimates, it's probably max 15,000, nowhere close to this 200,000 number. So mm-hmm. it was very clearly used kind of for um, political purposes. And so then when he ran in 2011 in the special election, he'd already started to tone down this rhetoric, and that continued um, after he took office. Um, The Chinese ambassador was the first high-level meeting that he took after Mm. assuming the presidency, and um, they continued to work very closely on a lot of projects, Chinese winning a lot of government contracts, et cetera. So that um, outspoken negativity didn't really play out um, when he actually took office. What do you think is the cause of him gradually kind of toning down the China or anti-China bashing? Uh, um, I think his um, the Patriotic Front, um, his party is a very populist party, so I think he, you know, appealed to the nationalist sensitivity of Zambians for the election. Mm-hmm. But I mean, China has a huge economic presence in Zambia. It's present in you know all the biggest industries, mining. Um, infrastructure, manufacturing. So, I mean, if he had continued with this when he was in office, it would probably have had severe economic effects that would be very impractical. So I I think, you know, it probably served his purpose politically and then wasn't so um, practical moving forward. Mm. And do you think now as him passing away and then the presidentship is subject for, you know, people's uh, new election campaigns, this kind of anti-China rhetorics will emerge again? Personally, I don't think we'll see it again in Zambia for a a while at least. I don't think it'll um, come up just because his stance was so fresh, everyone, I mean, so like recent as in fresh, people remember it um, and are very aware of his kind of sea change after he took power. So I, I don't think that it would have the same um, desired effect as it did before. People mm-hmm. would kind of see it for what it was. As, um, but people, it's really interesting. I kind of made a point when I was there of any taxi driver, you know, anybody I met on the street, they would ask me what I was doing there. And some people said, well, maybe, you know, try not to try not to goad them. And I, did, I didn't, you know, really try to you know, encourage them to get worked up. But I said, yeah, I'm studying China and Zambia and everyone has an opinion, you know? What what are people's opinions? Yeah, so it's a big range and a lot of them fall into like the stereotypes. They say, Mm. oh, they're so hardworking. Oh, there's so many of them. Oh, they're so, there's, you know, they're taking over. Oh, they're selling chickens in the market where Zambians should. But everyone has an opinion Mm. about it and no one is afraid of sharing it. And Mm. so I think that's really interesting. It's really like permeated... You know, and it doesn't mean that they're necessarily super well educated about the topic, but it's definitely something that everyone has something to say about, which mm. I think partially comes from the election. So I think you're kind of seeing the trickle-down effects there. Interesting. Uh, do you think this kind of opinion also apply to other countries, migrant workers or companies operating in Zambia? So actually you don't um, really see that so much. I mean, if you take a look at the um, the immigration numbers, China is number one coming in. Then it's India after that. Um, but the Indians have a much longer presence in Zambia and I mean there's a lot of Indian Zambians who are who say, you know, that they're Zambian but um, have Indian heritage.
Heritage and they're mm. much better integrated and I think people are mm. much more used to working with them. And then mm. after that, it's like the UK, Zimbabwe, South Africa, which they have a lot of things in common based on colonial ties, etc. Ge- like geography as well. Um, so they don't really stand out as much. I think one of the things with the Chinese is like the numbers really started to skyrocket just a few years ago, so people still aren't really used to it. Mm. And also, I mean, physically, linguistically, they stand out and really are a group apart. So I think they're a very easy group to kind of stereotype and talk about versus kind of involve in their day-to-day, as I think you see with the other um, people who are coming to Zambia. Mm. What can you tell us about Guy Scott, the interim president of Zambia, what does he think of China, and and what do high-level Zambian politicians think of China? So, um, Guy Scott just, he was the vice president of Zambia, now he's serving as the interim president, president of Zambia, they'll be holding a special election um, in 90 days, and according to the current constitution, um, he can't continue to serve as president because his parents were not born in Zambia, just as like a slight background, but um, he was educated in the UK, there's a lot of kind of interesting things about him and the media has tended to be focusing on those things recently. What do they want? What's the one thing they always focus on? About that he's Christ? white. That he's white, yes. But Zambians <laughs> don't care. Zambians are over it. They're like, what? He's been our vice president for years. Of course he's uh, white. <laughs> uh, he apparently has, has, a, has a history of being really outspoken um, and having a very forceful personality. Can you, can you expand on that? Yeah, no, he definitely does. Um, he's... I mean, made a lot of jokes. He's um, come out publicly in support um, of Mugabe, actually, in some ways, which was pretty um, surprising to some people, I think. Why would it be surprising to some people? Because Mugabe put into force in Zimbabwe um, a very um, highly contested policy, basically taking land back from white farmers. So as a white Zambian, but born then in Rhodesia, which was combined Zambia-Zimbabwe, everyone would expect him to be against this policy because it affected, you know, people in his same um, kin group, as it were. Um, But in terms of China, I actually, he was actually quoted as um, saying that the China bashing that took place um, when he and President Sata were on the campaign was a, quote, shock tactic. And he, so he actually recognized that publicly as for what Mm -hmm. it was for and also recognized that they have that they toned down when they took office. So, I mean, I think it's unlikely that during this 90-day interim he'll focus at all on foreign policy. I think the focus is really going to be on, you know, keeping the domestic situation under control and really providing a smooth transition to whoever will end up um, taking on power. But I also think that, I mean, I think that shows explicitly that I don't think he would go back to such, um, you know, outspoken negativity about the Chinese. And other high-level politicians, do you have any familiarity with them or, or how they feel about China? So, it's pretty much taken as a, as a given now that there is a um, well-established high-level relationship between um, Chinese politicians and Zambian politicians. I can't um, say I spoke personally with any of these high-level politicians, but some of the, you know, medium level guys in various different ministries um, would basically use it as a throwaway. You know, I was talking to somebody in the labor ministry and they're like, oh yeah, like that was done behind closed doors or 
um, you know, the Chinese ambassador made it very clear that that was important to him. So it's kind of like taken for granted that these things are going on, which to be very fair is exactly the same as a lot of other countries do as well. I mean, the U.S. is famous for going into countries and saying, no, we don't like your leader, you know, requesting concessions on a certain issue. Um, So I think it's important to keep that in mind when talking about that as regards China, because I think people can get very up in arms and very nervous about China doing that as well, but it's actually very in keeping with foreign policy in general. That's diplomacy. (laughs) Yeah. That's diplomacy. One one of the things, though, I'm curious about is China has so much vested in not not looking like another foreign power, like a colonial power, like yeah. Americans. <laughs> so um, to be seen as just another country is, is a really interesting sort of contrast with how China's vision for its foreign policy should play out. But you make a very excellent point. What China does in Zambia is what every big country does in Zambia. And sure, it's slightly different. They, you know, I think that they do focus much more on the business side of things. Like their, you know, the commercial side of their embassy is a huge part of their embassy. Like the building is actually, I think, bigger than the actual embassy building. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, I mean, a lot of their, um, you know, commercial practices are facilitated through the embassy. So I think this is in keeping with, you know, China coming in through the economic route versus through necessarily the overtly political route that other countries have. Could, could you expand on that? Sometimes the Chinese embassy and the Chinese, the Chinese government doesn't lead Chinese companies. In the case of Zambia, what is your impression? If, if, you're, a Zambian, if you're a Zambian minister and you want to get a deal done, do you call the embassy? Do you call the company? Do you call the Ministry of Commerce? Who is the first call? Um, and I recognize that you might have been privy to these sorts of conversations. With yeah, I think... So in terms of contracts, one, I also kind of dug into this a little bit, got some, got some lists. It tends to be the same big five or six companies winning a lot of these construction and infrastructure bids. So I mean, if it is a, a minister who's worked previously with this company, they've won a ton of bids, probably they'd call directly. But the Chinese embassy... It's very interesting. It's kind of two-pronged. So these huge, mainly state-owned enterprises, they have a very close relationship with and do work to facilitate deals through that. But the smaller companies and the you know, people who aren't linked with these high-profile places say they have almost no connection to the Chinese embassy at all. Mm-hmm. And the Chinese embassy doesn't even necessarily even know that they're present. So I think... Um, you know, it kind of depends what level you're talking on, but there actually are a lot of mid-level, I think mainly construction firms, which is people that came first on a contract with one of these big state-owned construction companies and then decided to stay, and they're winning subcontracts from mm-hmm. these big companies that are winning the original tenders. So, I mean, they are a sizable player, but it's just, um, it's kind of running in parallel versus in tandem. Mm. And when all those anti-China rhetorics was happening during election years, what were Chinese people's reaction in Zambia towards those? Did you interact with them, ask them about their feelings? Did you feel threatened and considered leaving, or they just think it's politics, has nothing to do with their lives? So it's a very mobile population, so actually a lot of people there now weren't there in 2008. 
Um, so I can't really speak to that, but I mean, they're very, very isolated from the Zambian population. They tend to live mm. with Chinese in, you know, in separate um, compounds, etc. So, I mean, most Chinese people I spoke to were extremely lonely because they felt like they had no connection to the wider Zambian society. So I'm not even sure that that would have really bled over. Like, I'm sure they would have seen it in the papers and everything like that, but I'm not sure it translated on the ground. Um, I mean, we've seen um, riots and things like that at, at mines, but um, nothing like um, riots that have gone on, like in South Africa, like looting of stores and things like that. It, w- it wasn't happening on that level. So I think the personal connection may not have um, been there as much as you might think. Mm. What's the profile of the Chinese people there as you interact with them? Yeah, so it's actually really interesting. I mean, Chinese migrants have typically been um, stereotyped, but also, I mean, based in fact as, you know, 20s, 30s men from the east coast of China. But I was actually surprised um, how diverse the population was. There are a lot of people from inland China, actually a lot of people from Chengdu, which was great. (laughs) Um, Got some Sichuanhua. Oh, um, so many restaurants. Oh, also so many restaurants. <laughs> we can talk yeah, about can, that later. Yeah, I understand more than I can speak, unfortunately. I like uh, But um, yeah, so and I was also surprised um, at the gender ratio. There are more women than I would have expected. I would probably estimate. I mean, still mainly men, but maybe like. 70-30, whereas I would have thought it oh, would wow. be even more split. And, and where were you based to make to make these sorts of Oh, sorry. Um, I was mainly living in Lusaka in the capital, um, where it was the best place to conduct... I was doing a lot of um, kind of statistical research and things like that, with, and that's where a lot of the companies are based, as well as all the government centers. So, um, But, I mean, you do see, it's really interesting, you go out, you see communities of Chinese, I mean, everywhere in the country, because a lot of them are working on roads, like I said, Mm. so, I mean, you're driving, you see the road on construction, and then there are the shacks, you know, with the road crew on the side of the road, so that's interesting also, but I think one of the things, I mean, Chinese mainly come to Zambia to work, the, I mean, 99% of the approved permits are employment permits. So I think that's part of the reason that you see the Chinese geographical diversity that you do, because they're coming with whatever company they have a contract with. So for example, the reason there's so many people from Sichuan is that Lusaka Pan Brick, this brick company, is owned by someone from Sichuan. So mm-hmm. all their employees then come from Sichuan. And they're just um, starting a new center, um, it's Jilin Agriculture. So now a bunch of people from Jilin are coming. And so then it kind of starts the chain migration, though, because one person comes and their family comes with them, and you get these growing populations, but of people from less traditional um, migrant-sending areas, mm. which is pretty interesting and um, different from, like, the main narrative you tend to hear. Mm. So most of these Chinese people go there with big construction firms. There's very few kind of local micro-entrepreneurs going there or settling down themselves. No, it's, so it's about half large firms. Um and then about half either smaller firms or um, entrepreneurs. So um, there's actually 30 Chinese restaurants in the capital of Zambia oh, alone. that's quite a lot. Zero? Three wow. zero. It's a bit 
debatable. Some of them are really hard to find. But I my little side project was each weekend I went to a different Chinese restaurant um, to kind of check out where they were from and to kind of just see what the lay of the land was. <laughs> I must be surprised to see you speaking Chinese. Very. I'm also, I love I love Chinese food, so I would always order in Chinese. I would ask them for kwaiza and stuff like that, so they're always, um, yeah, very surprised um, at that. But, I mean, amazing Chinese food, way better than anything we have in D.C., and oh, yeah, <laughs> a huge there, variety. There, there's, a, I, I, there's a few decent places. There are, but almost everywhere we went there was phenomenal because, I mean, they basically only serve the Chinese community. There's one restaurant there that's been kind of westernized and expats know about and Zambians know about, but everything else is, I wouldn't see anyone besides other Chinese there. So, I mean, they're serving their local population. So, I mean, that translates mm-hmm. into the cuisine as well. Yeah, that's actually my experience too. I feel when I was in, say, uh, Kampala or Nairobi, the Chinese restaurant there are in general much better than yeah, you see. <laughs> <laughs> Can't complain. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, let's maybe talk about the big companies a bit since we mentioned it earlier. Uh, as we know, the Zambian economy is heavily dependent on the mining industry, uh, and a large number of multinational corporations are operating there. Uh, for example, Barrick Gold, Glencore, and also China's Manferous Metals Corporation. Uh, and recently, the Zambia parliament is now considering a hike of minor royalties to 20% from 6%. Um, what's your opinion first about that policy? Uh, and also, uh, just this past Thursday, Barry Code, a spokesman, said that if that policy goes ahead in next January, maybe they have to close down the Lamwana uh, copper mine. Um, so, yeah, what do you think the implications of that will be? Yeah, so like you said, I mean, copper is extremely important to the Zambian economy. Um, I saw a figure that said 78% um, of Zambian exports is actually copper exports. So, I mean, it's, it's a huge sector there. So, two things. First of all, I do think the government could stand to benefit a bit more. So back in the 90s, they, they privatized um, these copper mines, um, which was really great for production and things like that, but the government hasn't been retaining a lot of that um, revenue. It's just been going straight out through the private companies and exports. So, I mean, even a 2% increase in that could really mean a significant chunk of change for the Zambian government, which they've been having a lot of budget um, issues recently, so that could really help them out. However, 20% from 6 is a huge jump. Um, mm-hmm. So not only do I think that won't happen, but because they, I mean, they can't survive without the copper industry, so if these, if these companies leave, they're going to be in serious trouble. So I don't think they would actually go through with it, but I mean, that's also a very drastic change. I think, you know, a modified version of that could be pretty useful, and I think they might be able to come to a happy medium. But I'm also not sure on the timeline, um, like with President Sato's passing and everything, I think it might um, get put off for a bit longer. Hmm. Yeah. Do you have anything else you would like to add before we sign off? Yeah, I mean, I think I just want to say there's, I've been actually surprised at how much media coverage there's been about this. Like you said, mainly focusing on the fact that Guy Scott is white. Um, but I just want to add that, like, from from my friends who are who are there right now, um, both expats and Zambians, you know, their their perspective is that everything has been, you know, very calm. And people were expecting maybe a bit of turmoil, but I mean, things are, you know, 
They're, the country is in mourning, and um, they don't care that Guy Scott is white. They just, you know, want someone to, you know, help them transition through this. So I think that's important to keep in mind when you read a lot of kind of sensationalist um, articles about this, that I think that's mainly for the media purpose and not what is really going on on the ground. So I think it'll be interesting to see. Um, I, I'm not in a position to, like, hazard any guesses about who would take over, but I think it will be interesting to see um, what their positions will be and how the transition goes. Now we're moving on to recommendations. Recommend something to our listeners, please. Yeah, Panda Restaurant in the middle of a half-built office park um, in (laughs) Lusaka. It's extremely hard to find, but I put it on Google Maps, so now you can find it. You Um, can (laughs) Yeah, you can, like, enter them in. You can add locations, and this place is amazing, and it wasn't on there, and it's really hard to find. So Panda Restaurant in Lusaka. Um... Amazing Sichuan food. Um, dan dan mian, mapo dofu, la Oh, wow. Like, uh, um, Yangfer. <laughs> yep, also. Oh, my wife and I have to go there. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible, and they're also so kind. Um, they, the first time I went in and told them how much I love Sichuan food and everything, they <laughs> they gave me a little set of my own chopsticks because oh. I said I didn't have any at home. Just, like, really lovely people. Um, so everyone should go and check it out. You, you heard it here first, and I hope um, Panda Restaurant is paying you well for the buck. <laughs> the chopsticks were worth it. So. The chopsticks, the chopsticks were, were, were worth it, but that, that is great to hear, and um, I'm always in support of Sichuan restaurants getting some, some much-needed love. <laughs> so thank you so much for that lovely recommendation. Before we sign off, how do people find you on the interwebs? Do you have a website or a Twitter account that you'd like to share with us? Um, I'm on LinkedIn, so Hannah Postel, you can find me through there. Good enough. <laughs> no website as yet. <laughs> you, you haven't made a blog? No, I maybe I should. I don't know. I should think about that. <laughs> that that's that that's that's quite all right. And yeah, dear listeners, please go if you want to connect with Miss Postel. I would really welcome any questions or any feedback that anyone has. I'm always thrilled to keep talking about this so please and for and for more uh, Chinese restaurant recommendations in Osaka yeah of course I actually have a full list of all 30 um, ranked out of five stars with specially recommended dishes etc so that oh, wow. like if you want to get future podcast <laughs> yeah there we go <laughs> fantastic fantastic um, Grace how do people find you on the internet well, I am on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Grace Yue Zhou. Yue is spelled as Y U E and Zhou as V H O U. What do you tweet about? What, well, should people follow you at all? Or? Well, I don't know. <laughs> people make their own judgments. I don't really care about an online personal brand as people nowadays put so much mind on. Uh, I just tweet whatever <laughs> I find interesting. And, and Grace uh, Grace has a, a good Twitter account, I find, and, and that covers a lot of topics, especially relating to African development. And recently you tweeted about um, about the U.S. response to Ebola uh, and how it relates to SARS and Ebola's outbreak in Uganda. And I thought that was a very, very um, well... Uh, I really agree with your sentiments. And, and I urge <laughs> all of you to follow her and, and read what she said, because I thought it was a very accurate statement. 
I myself can be found on caloriesrice.blogspot.com. My Twitter handle is at Winslow underscore R. I tweet about China Africa news. I'm proud to say that my Twitter account was named uh, for the Downway Model Worker 2014. And Downway, if you don't know, is a media group run by this guy, Jeremy Goldcorn, is a South African living in China, and he's a brilliant dude. Ooh! <laughs> Yay! <laughs>